This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. The next three, can you hear me? The next three presentations are really the heart. This was more the introduction that we just had. The next three presentations are really going to be the heart of the uh, seminar. And then the last presentation will deal specifically with what our mission and message as a Seventh-day Adventist church needs to be today. And I truly believe that as a Protestant Reformation movement, that we have been called for such a time as this, and we're going to go into that tomorrow in tomorrow's uh, last presentation. So I want to begin uh, this presentation with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in this room. We thank you for your love for each one of us, and we ask that you would bless our time here together. And we thank you that we have the truths of your word, and that we can rely on your word today. We pray that as we compare your word in this presentation with some of the teachings that led to the protest many years ago, may we resonate with the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first presentation, I began with this slide of Pope John Paul II's funeral in 2005, a choreographed public relations masterpiece. And within five years of that event, I documented how the Supreme Court went from a majority Protestant court to a two-thirds majority Catholic court, and that in 2017, that configuration remains the same. Within 10 years of that event, just two years ago, Pope Francis was addressing the Joint Congress of the United States And it was a media sensation with wall-to-wall media coverage in this country and around the world. We are certainly reminded as Seventh-day Adventists of the prophecy of Revelation 13, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. We talked about how everywhere we turn, we see a smiling pope kissing babies, speaking of love, upholding the family and the importance of saving the planet and working together for the common good. And just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And we are being told in the media that, and by the ecumenical events around us, that it's time for us all to come together, that it's time for us all To be inclusive, culture demands, after all, that we put aside our differences and simply focus on the common things that we hold in common. During the break, somebody asked me about that. I mean, that's what it's about today. That's what our culture is pushing for and the ethos that we live in today. And some have said and have gone so far as to declare that the Reformation was based on a misunderstanding and that is, in fact, And in fact, Lutheran did not understand properly the teachings of his church. Today, I would like to suggest in this presentation and in the one that will come tomorrow that there are in fact two fundamental causes that sparked and upheld the protest 
by the early reformers. Those two is the belief in the Bible, sola scriptura, and the historicist interpretation of prophecy that derived from the study of the Word of God. Was it just a misunderstanding? Has Rome really been misunderstood or has the protest simply waned with time? To answer that question, this morning we will look at several contemporary sources. You know, one thing that I've noticed over the years as we have attended many times evangelistic meetings and as we've listened to presentations, many of our sources are dated sources sometimes, aren't they? And while those dated sources are important because we know that the Catholic Church doesn't really change in its fundamental makeup and its fundamental uh, being, uh, it is important to look at contemporaneous sources. So I'm going to try to do that today. This morning, I want to look at the most contemporaneous sources and look what is being taught and what is being said today. As in the last few years, particularly by this current pope and by his encyclicals. The Reformation stood on the imperative, the first, by the way, of the five solas, because from it derived everything else, sola scriptura, or the Bible alone. This was based on the internal example of Scripture itself. The New Testament writers, according to one estimate by a Princeton University theologian some years ago, the New Testament writers employed... <clears throat> 2,688 quotes, not allusions, not, you know, paraphrases, but quotes from the Old Testament in their writings. They allowed Scripture to not only inform, but they saw Scripture as continuing through their writings in the New Testament. And we want to look today at Jesus and what he taught. Because Jesus was a man that was fully founded, was Christ, the Messiah, God, who founded himself and who subjugated himself, submitted himself to the living word of God. He was the word of God, according to John 1, right? But he also submitted himself to the word of God. And if we are Christians today and Christ is our example, we too, thank you so much, Daniela, we too must submit ourselves today to the living word of God. Let's look at a few examples. Luke chapter 4, the context. Jesus has just been baptized. And after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness. And as he goes into the wilderness and is there for 40 days and 40 nights, what happens right after that? The devil, Satan, comes and tempts Jesus. And what does he, Jesus do? How does he respond? It is written every single time to every temptation that the devil throws at him. It is written. Now the devil's smart too. What does he do after that first it is written? He comes back and quotes scripture as well. But the devil, who knows scripture better than any of us probably ever will, because he's been around a lot longer and has been studying it much longer than we have, he loves to quote things out of context. So Jesus, when he quoted scripture, was quoting it in context and was quoting it 
particularly to combat what was being said. It is written, we can finish this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is a powerful testimony. If Jesus can say that, certainly we need to say that today. We need to be men and women who stand by the word and who refute by the word. In Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus tells the Pharisees, not one jot or tittle will pass from this law until all is fulfilled. And in the last presentation, we've seen how prophecy is being fulfilled today. In John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. In John 10, 35, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. Now, this is very significant because as we saw in our previous presentation, what is often happening today in the ecumenical dialogue between uh, churches is that Scripture has been broken. It's been broken into minute pieces through the historical critical method and by presuppositions that destroy the very authenticity and divine revelation and inspired nature of scripture. And when you do that, scripture can become fluid and you can do what you want with it because the church ends up creating scripture. Man creates scripture instead of God. Jesus says scripture cannot be broken. And when he is praying to his father in John chapter 17, for his disciples, which I believe can be extended to you and I that are here in this room today and listening today, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, it's interesting that this verse comes just a few verses before the verse that is being touted today as the major verse to bring ecumenism together that all might be what? One. But the basis of that oneness, the basis of that unity, Jesus has said a few verses earlier, is what? The truth of Scripture. So sanctify them by your truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. Not the counsels of men, not the decisions of ecumenical bodies. The word is truth. So today what we want to do is we want to go back to the word. That's what the reformers did, and that's what we need to do today. If Jesus is our example, should we not be standing on the authority of God's word today? Even in his last words on the cross, in his agony as he's hanging on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. He's quoting scripture, the last words that he speaks on this earth. Before his resurrection, he quotes scripture Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, submitting himself to the authority of the living Word of God. And Ellen White has that beautiful picture that even though Jesus in his agony and with the weight of our sins crushing him at the cross did not see or recognize in that horrible moment but that the Father was standing there at his side. The Protestant reformers stood firm on the word of God 
because they knew that the Roman church had placed tradition equal to and ultimately above the word of God. And the word of God provided a freedom to the reformers that they had never felt before. Luther, if you, if you study Luther, if you watch that wonderful film that came out, I think it was in 2003, on Luther. Some of you may have seen it. I, I wish I, for one of our seminars here we could just show the whole film. It's, it's fascinating. But Luther was obsessed with salvation. And as a monk, as he beat himself, as he languished in his cell, he felt a complete complete separation from God. It was scripture that opened to him the reality of righteousness by faith and the beauty and the freedom that can be found in understanding God's word. Notice the clear statement in the Vatican II documents. Vatican II, by the way, was the uh, major council that occurred um, in the 1960s and it was truly a redefinition for Catholicism in its approach to Protestantism. Prior to this time, the church was combative with Protestantism. And the wars that took place between Protestantism and Catholics were, were wars that took place through the pen, through writing, doctrinal wars, if you will. But at the Vatican II Council, it was decided that the approach towards Protestantism should be different. And that approach should be one of finding commonality and ecumenical in nature in praying with one another, in finding community with one another. Interesting. It's not that the doctrines changed. It's that the approach changed. But this is what Vatican II states at the same time. And this is very important. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. Now, what's interesting in this statement is which one is listed first? Sacred tradition. So sacred tradition and the Bible are equal, and yet what happens and what has happened in the history of the church and Judaism before it is whenever you have the Bible and something, the Bible and tradition, the Bible and reason, the Bible and culture, the Bible and, you can fill in the blank. Whenever you have the Bible and something, what happens after a while in time is that whatever comes after the end takes subservience and precedence over the word of God. And that can happen consciously and can, can, can happen unconsciously. And that is what began to happen in the church. Look at this quote from Pope Francis in 2013 as he was addressing the Pontifical Biblical Commission. This is a group of Catholic theologians and well-trained individuals. By the way, let me share something with you that's very interesting. The Catholics have had the longest time in history to work out their doctrine and their position philosophically, theologically, and let me tell you, they are well-trained. And they know what they're doing. I don't want you to think, when you see a bishop or an archbishop or a cardinal, they all have doctorates in theology. 
These are not simply clergy that have raised up through the ranks. They all have doctorates in theology. They've all studied for years, whether in the Jesuit order or in some other order. They have studied and studied and studied. They are well-versed and they know. The current pope has a doctorate in theology. Okay? All of them do. And this is part of what's going on. And, and as he's addressing his colleagues, fellow theologians and scholars, this is what he says. The interpretation of the Holy Scriptures cannot be only an individual scientific effort, but must always confront itself with, be inserted within and authenticated by the living tradition of the church. The norm is ascent, this norm is essential to specify the correct relationship between exegesis, which is getting what the Bible says out of the Bible, and the magisterium of the church. So the living tradition of the church and the magisterium and the Bible are all intermingled. In fact, this is a graphic I found online which is very helpful. The Catholic Church rests on those three legs, if you will, of a stool. Okay. Sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium. The magisterium decides what sacred scripture says. The magisterium decides whether it can change laws or not. The magisterium decides the teaching of the church, and it bases its, its, its decision on both sacred tradition and what the Catholic Church has said before, and on scripture. What did Protestantism say? No magisterium. No tradition. Well, yes, we have traditions. Don't get me wrong. But our traditions must be based fully and solely on the Word of God. Now, Catholics, you know, criticize this, and they say, well, if you have a stool like that, that stool's not going to stand. But let's not say that Scripture is just one little skinny leg. Let's make it a huge trunk of a tree, with deep roots that go all the way back to creation. And then it stands. Okay? Jesus, of course, had to deal with tradition in his day as well. And if you spend as much time in Israel as I do and work among the people of that country as I have over the last 30 years, I can tell you that there are a great deal of traditions in that part of the world. Notice what Jesus says. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I'm just going to start here. Thus you have made the commandments of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The traditions of Judaism had so encapsulated the Judaism of the first century that people had lost their focus on God and we're simply involved in the details. So today we're going to look at the traditions of Rome. We're not going to look at 15 of them or 20 of them as we might be able to. We're going to limit our time here. But I want to look at some of the essential ones and some of those essential ones that have divided Protestantism and Rome. And I'm going to ask you the question, basically I want you to ask yourself the question as we go through this, if these are still doctrines of the church today, and we're going to look at contemporary sources, is there still a reason for a protest? 
Is it possible to really come together? Or is there a reason for the protest and the reformation to continue? That's the question we want to ask today because that's fundamental. The question that we want to ask ourselves is, so what? Most of Protestantism has lost the so what. They don't know what they are anymore. But let's look at some of these elements here. So this is kind of the outline of the rest of the presentation. We know that as Rome, as pagan Rome and papal Rome became one, that many different pagan traditions were baptized into the church, right? We know that as Adventists. Let's look at one of these, and that is Mary as being elevated to the Queen of Heaven. Now, we can go way back in history on this. I don't have time for that. I'm actually an ancient historian. I'm an archaeologist. That's normally what I present on. But I'm going to look at more modern history of the 20th century and onwards. In 1904, Pope Pius X declared Mary, quote, the restorer of the fallen world and the mediatrix. She is the channel of all graces and intercessory cooperation. In 1935, and this is a whole list of Pope Piuses here, Pope Pius XI said that Mary is the co-redemptrix. Now you know what a redemptrix, these are Latin terms. Redemptrix, redeemer, she's the co-redeemer. And in 1950, Pope Pius XII pronounced that Mary completely overcame sin by her immaculate conception. Now, let's, let's ask a question. We know that Mary was the mother of God, right? Mother of Jesus. She did have, she was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ by the, through the Holy Spirit. We know that. But what we're talking about here is something very different that develops within the Catholic Church. And today, Mariology is huge within Catholicism. When I go to Catholic churches, and we visit Catholic churches all over the world. My wife is an art historian, and so we visit the art, and some of the greatest art is in Catholic churches. And when you go into Catholic churches, and sometimes you go to the places where the, where the Catholics will put their candles, where they will light their candles, Mary has... Tons of candles lit in front of her because she is the one, she's a mother figure and she's the one that is, I don't know, when you think of your mother, you think of someone that you can go to, you know? She's, she's the mediator. Jesus, on the other hand, remember this distinctly, in the Sea of Galilee, there's a Catholic church right at the base of the Mountain of Beatitudes. Jesus had nobody in front of her, him and no candles lit in front of him. Only Mary, but they were right next to each other. He was almost virtually ignored in that situation. Now, here's an interesting church, a little Marian shrine in Bavaria in southern Germany. We visited here a few years ago, and this is very close to the place, just a few kilometers from where Pope Benedict XIV, formerly Karl Ratzinger, where he was born and where he spent most of his life in Germany before he became Pope Benedict. By the way, Pope Benedict XIV is still alive, right? And uh, he is in the weird situation of being kind of a co-pope with the current pope, which is the first time that's happened in 500 years. So it's a lot of weird things are happening right now. But um, <clears throat> this church was established in 660 AD. It's the oldest Marian shrine in Germany. And the image of Mary 
is venerated here as a black Madonna of great antiquity. Probably the image of Mary herself goes back to about 1330. So that's quite old. It's carved from Lindenwood and it became a very popular pilgrim destination. You know that Catholics go on pilgrimages and they visit these churches because there are relics there that will provide them, they believe, with great, uh, great uh, rewards. Here, is, here she is inside. Here's Jesus, by the way, crowned. And here's Mary. He's kind of a little man here. And my wife can go into more reasons as how that came about. But here's Pope Benedict as a pope. Later on, when he was Pope Benedict XVI, did I say 14th? I meant 16th. Anyway, when he became pope, he came to this Marian shrine just a few kilometers away from his home. And there he placed his bishopric ring on her um, as a token of his affection and his, uh, his adoration. When you enter that chapel, there is a plaque on the lintel of the door that says that if you enter the chapel and you go in, that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. That's why there are pilgrimages that take place there. There's another reason that pilgrimages take place there, and that is because that Mary, the Mary, this Mary that is here at the shrine is known to heal. And there are busloads of people that get off in wheelchairs and uh, are helped to this shrine, and they carry crosses and rosaries as they make their way around uh, this place, praying for healing. And there's plaques all over the shrine with uh, evidences given of that. Now, in his latest encyclical, what does Pope Francis say about Mary and Mariology? This is in his latest encyclical, Laudato Si, which came out in May 2015. She is the woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, Revelation 12.1. So this is Mary. How do we interpret Revelation 12.1? That's the church, right, that is going to give birth. But here, it's Mary. Carried up into heaven, she is the mother and queen of all creation. In her glorified body, together with the risen Christ, part of creation has reached the fullness of its beauty. She treasures the entire life of Jesus in her heart and now understands the meaning of all things. Hence, we can ask her to enable us to look at this world with eyes of wisdom. Well, it's not just that we look at her with eyes of wisdom, but she takes our petitions to Jesus. It's interesting that the ideas that are perpetuated in this Marian shrine in Germany and other places as well. By the way, I lived in, two, I lived in Tucson, Arizona, just two hours south of here. And uh, that's where I did my master's and doctorate at the University of Arizona. And it's very interesting, just south of there, as you head towards the border at Nogales, you come to San Javier's Mission, a white church that's just on the... Uh, right-hand side as you're heading south of I-10. And if you go to San Javier's church, uh, the mission there, you will find something very interesting, and it's what we're going to look at here. This is actually ancient Corinth in Greece. And in ancient, ancient Corinth, an Asclepion was found that is a, um, a temple dedicated to Asclepius, the Roman god of healing, and there you have all kinds of body parts that were found, that were brought. These are sculpted out of uh, ceramics, and they're brought there as votives for the god Asclepius to remember that body part that needs healing. Okay? That's still taking place in the Catholic Church today. 
You go down to San Javier Mission and you'll find little tiny ones like this, little tiny arms and little tiny legs and other body parts that are hanging in front of Mary so that Mary can heal. At least that's what was going on when I lived in Arizona, when I lived here, uh, that was some over 20 years ago now. But that's what, and and, and the, this is the Marian shrine in Germany. This is close up. These are the crosses I told you that they would carry around. What is behind the glass over here? These are wax figures of arms and legs that people have brought as votives for Mary to remember. This goes all the way back to Roman history and Roman culture and Roman religion. Again, ideas that have been baptized in the church. I just had to throw a little archaeology in there. I couldn't help myself. What does the Bible say? That's the question, right? That's what we need to ask. Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, and I love this verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Isn't that preposition in the singular? I. Doesn't say we. It says I. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus, he is our mediator. And speaking, Jesus himself speaking of his mother in Luke 8, 20 to 21. My mother and brother, brothers are those that hear God's word and put it into practice. Wow. That means that if Jesus is saying this of his mother, who taught him the scriptures as he was growing up, who revealed to him the word of God and nurtured him as a young boy growing up in Nazareth. If he can say this of his mother, wouldn't Mary, who I believe is not in heaven, but is in a grave somewhere, and there's several traditions of where she's buried. One is in Ephesus, because John was in Ephesus, and he was entrusted to take care of Mary. Remember, Jesus asked him to do that at the cross. One is that she's buried in Jerusalem. There's different ideas, but anyway... Mary would be spinning in her grave right now to hear all this stuff that is being made up about her. Because if she's not in heaven, she's, none of this is of any effect. We'll talk about this a little bit further as we go to the next item. Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm to the faith we profess. Who's in the heavenly sanctuary right now? Who is our mediator standing in front of the throne of God, petitioning in our behalf? Jesus, let us firm, hold firm to the faith we profess. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It is Jesus who gives the grace that we need, not Mary. Jesus is the one, the only one. This brings us to a second teaching of the church that was extremely important. And this is the saints, the teaching of the saints. Now, I don't know how many of you know how many saints there are in Catholicism. I had to look it up. You know, nowadays you can Google it, right? And not even Google knew. They said about 10,000 or more saints. And if you've been around Catholics, you know that sometimes they have their patron saint that they like to pray to or someone that they like to to uh, be as their mediator. I've added one very well-known person over here, St. Luke. That's Luke, the, uh, apostle, the, the, the physician who wrote the book of Luke and Acts. 
Now, by the way, I like to call sometimes my students when they come into class, I like to call them saints. <clears throat> I call them saints not because they're perfect necessarily. I know because I grade their papers sometimes. Um, but because they're part of the kingdom of God. And we can all be saints today, right? We understand this differently than, than, uh, than they. But notice, notice the two people here. You know who this is? Teresa, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, now Saint Teresa. And who's this? John Paul II. No longer called Pope, now he's Saint John Paul II. I did not refer to him that way in my first presentation because I don't believe in, in sainthood. Today, as of a few months ago, I didn't look more recently, I think there may be a few more, the current Pope Francis has already beatified, that is, made saints of 34 different people, including these two individuals that you see here, and that is increasing. What did Martin Luther, who we're commemorating this year, what did he have to say? The invocation of the saints is one of the abuses of the Antichrist. That's pretty strong. That's really strong. But that's what he believed. And that's what the Protestants believed. Because they saw, through sola scriptura, another sola, sola Christus, or sola Christi. Through Christ alone. Through Christ alone. And we are part of that Reformation heritage today because that's what the Bible teaches. That was the great freeing element that Luther perceived as he read through the books of Romans and Galatians, which we've been doing most recently in our Sabbath school lessons in this church as well these months. <clears throat> Pope Pius Twelfth says this, there is good reason why the cult of the saints in heaven is valued by Christian people, that is, so that they may employ their help, that they may be raised up by the protection of those in whose praises we delight. And from this, it may be easy to understand why the Holy Liturgy offers us many formulas of prayers in which it invokes the assistance of the saints in heaven What does the Bible say? Are the saints in heaven? The Bible compares death to sleep more than 50 times. Ecclesiastes 9.5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. In Acts 2, we read, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and what? Buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, for David did not ascend into the heavens. As an archaeologist, that would be a tomb I wouldn't mind finding someday. I've excavated a site called Kirbet Kayafa, which is one of the cities, I believe, that David, if he didn't build it, he certainly was refurbishing it during his time. It's on display right now in the New Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., by the way, if you ever are from there or are going there. For the next six months, we have a great exhibit there in the New Museum of the Bible on David um, from our excavations. But this is, uh, this is what it says. Where is David? 
He is buried to this day. And he's writing this when? A thousand years after David. 1100 years after David. So the Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul. And this is one of the elements, friends. Again, spiritualism. This is one of the elements that will bring the churches together. They've already capitulated on Sunday. They already have in common with one another the state of the dead. We'll talk about this in our presentation tomorrow. Indulgences in purgatory. This is Johann Tetzel, the person who Luther was responding to greatly when he put those 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. And this was, I don't know how they got it to rhyme in English because in German, it rhymes too. Maybe because they're both Germanic languages. As soon as the coin and the coffer rings, <clears throat> that's where you put, you know, the box, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther was very adamant about this. <clears throat> and I would say this about Luther, that when he nailed those 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, he was not intending to start and spark the Reformation that we are celebrating this year. He was simply disputing a teaching in the church at that time in the way that those kinds of teachings were disputed. He was opening up a dialogue, if you will, a debate, if you will. The fact that perhaps his students or colleagues took those 95 theses and had them printed and sent all over the place was maybe not of his doing at all. But he was quite adamant. Would you like to read a couple of them? Maybe you haven't even done this. The Pope, this is just a smattering of a few. The Pope has neither the will nor the power to remit any penalties beyond those he has imposed either at his own discretion or by canon law. Hence, those preachers of indulgences are wrong when they say that a man is absolved and saved from every penalty by the Pope's indulgences. It is mere human talk to preach that the soul flies out of purgatory immediately the money clinks in the collection box. It is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the collection box, greed and avarice can increase. But the intercession of the church depends on the will of God alone. Christians should be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the preachers of indulgences, hence Tetzel and others, he would rather have the Basilica of St. Peter reduced to ashes than built with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. You see, Luther was writing these out of a care and out of a love and out of a concern for his people in his parish because he saw that they were giving, these were peasants, and they were spending their last, whatever currency they had back then, their last coins to free grandpa, from purgatory, or a relative, or whoever it was. And he saw what it was doing to them. And he didn't believe that it was biblical. Number 82, why does the Pope empty purgatory, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of most holy love and the supreme need of souls? This would be the most righteous of reasons if he can redeem innumerable souls for sordid money with which to build a basilica, the most trivial reasons. Since the Pope's wealth is larger than that of the crassest crossy of our time, 
Why does he not build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with that of the faithful poor? Christians should be exhorted to seek earnestly to follow Christ, their head, through penalties, deaths, and hells, and let them thus be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. Strong words, and these are only a few smatterings of them. Now it is true that with the Council of Trent, the sale of indulgences, that is, the sale of indulgences for money was done away with in the Catholic Church. So there's something that changed. But indulgences are still very much alive today. Recently, my wife Giselle, <clears throat> who will be presenting next this afternoon, was in Rio de Janeiro. She's Brazilian, and she was there with our children. I was there, I think, and then had to leave early for a conference someplace. Um, and she was flying out of Rio, and as she was in the airport, it was flocked with young people, and she was hearing French, and she speaks French because she spent a year at Cologne. It was her, one of her majors. And she could hear Italian, and she could hear all these European young people there. What's going on? So she asked, what's going on? Haven't you heard? The Pope will be in Rio for a youth rally. It was called JMJ, not GYC, okay? JMJ, okay, a youth rally. And this was what was later published by CBS News as a result of that youth rally. This was Pope Francis. Get time off in purgatory by following the Pope on Twitter. You could receive an indulgence for following the Pope on social media. Now the Vatican didn't like this as well, so it kind of made some revisions and revised some things, but this is what was published at the time. Okay, I didn't bring with me, by the way, the large indulgence that I have. Because when I was, uh, not when I was, when my father was in Rome in the 1970s, he decided to buy an indulgence. Not because he believed in indulgences, but because he wanted to have an illustration for his future work as a seminary professor and pastor and potentially an meetings and camp meetings and things like that. So he has a huge indulgence signed by the current Pope of that time. I forgot to bring it to GYC. I just, I just looked at it two days ago because I was in Michigan at my mom's house. <clears throat> it's signed by the Pope. My dad was a little cheeky though. Very cheeky. Has a little bit of a sense of humor, you know. He had it made out to John Doe. <laughs> anyway, let's go on. This year, 2017, is the 100-year anniversary of Fatima or Fatima. And you are promised all kinds of time off purgatory if you worship her and go to make a pilgrimage to her shrine. Make a pilgrimage to the shrine, pray before any statue of Our Lady of Fatima. For elderly or infirm, simply pray in front of any statue of Our Lady of Fatima. Offer to merciful God with confidence through Mary their prayers and sufferings. This is from the Catholic News Agency. And here we have the Pope visiting her specifically. And uh, this was a very important element of today. So this is alive and well. And by the way, the worship of Fatima or Fatima is something that is also held in common with Muslims. Somebody during the break was asking me about how 
all of this is going to happen in the future between Muslims and Catholics. If you really understand the fundamentals of those two religions, there's a lot more in common between them in their systems than we may be aware, even though they're very different uh, today and, and, and kind of are pitted against one another. But um, <clears throat> I'm not so sure that that's something that's going to continue in the future. Next one, priestly confession. I want you to think about this for a moment. You're a Catholic, and you have to make confession to a priest. And you go to the priest, as this person is doing, and you make confession to them. If the Catholic Church knows the sins of all the people that confess to the priests, that is power. I want you to think about that for a moment. The Catholic Church knows all of the dirtiest things that you've done. That's power. Praise the Lord that we have no other high priest but Jesus Christ. Amen. You don't have to go to a pastor to confess. You can go to a pastor to ask for advice, to seek counseling, but you don't have to go to a pastor and confess all the nitty-gritty stuff that you do. You have one Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who is right now standing in the presence of Almighty God in the heavenly sanctuary, pleading on our behalf. And your prayers, mingled with his prayers, have more power than anything in this universe can imagine. Amen. That is the beauty of the Protestant Reformation and biblical truth. Martin Luther, what did he say? God preserve us from having any other priest but Christ. He was a priest. What does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much? All, All unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. <clears throat> We can go on and on with more verses. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. Praise the Lord for the grace of Jesus Christ. Every day we are in his grace. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We are not, when we become a Christian follower of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the dictates of the kingdom of Satan. Amen. We are now under the dictates of the Son of God, the risen Savior. His love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This was the great truth, great biblical truth of the Reformation. There's another very interesting teaching in the church, and now I'm kind of getting into some peripheral aspects, but really they're not that peripheral when you think about it. What is this thing about mandating the celibacy of priests? We do not have time to go into today, and nor do I want to, the sordid issues that have to deal with the priesthood and the allegations that have been raised for years. We just had the death of a former Archbishop of Boston who supposedly covered up a lot of sordid stuff that was going on 
I want you to think about the mentality of this, though. If you're a priest, you have the power to forgive sins, which kind of allows you to do whatever you want, in a sense, because there's this circle of thing going on. And the celibacy of priests, I think, has led to a lot of horrible things that have gone on. And certainly it is not a biblical concept. Martin Luther, interestingly enough, got married to a former nun, Katharina, Kati, von Bora. They had six children. What does the Bible say? It is not good for man to be alone. It's right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. You don't even have to go to Genesis chapter 2. You go to Genesis chapter 1. Where we are made in God's image. Priests in the Old Testament, were they celibate? No, they were married. Peter, the first pope, wasn't celibate. What did Jesus do after he left the synagogue that one Sabbath? After preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, he went into Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. And what does Jesus do? He heals her and she goes and serves them. I've read that often and thought to myself, hmm, that was kind of convenient, have a nice Sabbath dinner afterwards. <clears throat> but I'm sure Jesus didn't, wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking about her suffering. But if Peter, who's considered the first pope, and you have this apostolic succession following Peter, and he was not celibate, Oh, by the way, Catholics have all kinds of arguments around this, of course. They're not sure that, anyway, I don't know. Other apostles were married, of course. And then we have 1 Timothy 3, 2, where the leaders of the church are encouraged to be the husband of one wife. Again, now that doesn't mean everybody has to be married. We don't know that Paul was married. Some people think he was. We don't know that he was. It's interesting. Now, this is something that, of course, we know as Adventists, and I just want to add this here, but it has to do with the Sabbath and the changing of laws. This summer, my wife and I visited Spain for the first time, and this is in Sevilla, or Sevilla, is whatever we can pronounce it. It's correct Spanish. Seville. Sevilla, Spain, the famous cathedral there, and this is an altar in that cathedral, and it is made out of, I forget how many tons of solid silver highlighted in gold. But what is important is that this is Jesus. We had a guided tour, a paid-for guided tour by an art historian from Sevilla. And uh, this is Jesus. What is Jesus? He is the Son. Not S-O-N, in this case, S-U-N. He's crowned. Underneath him, who is this here? It's Mary. Okay? And then you have um, some archbishops or popes on either side. <clears throat> what does the Bible say about the Ten Commandments and about Sunday worship and the Sabbath? Ten Commandments were written with God's own finger. God said to Israel, See that you do all that I command. Do not add to it or take away from it. Jesus said, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And we have the wonderful verse in Revelation chapter 12. 
Here are the uh, Revelation chapter 14. Here are the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And yet when you compare the commandments that we have in our Bibles with the commandments in the Catholic Bible, it's very different. The second commandment, which, de which deals with no graven images, has been completely removed in the Catholic catechisms and in the Catholic Bible. The one that no graven images. The seventh-day Sabbath, that commandment has been drastically shortened. And while the seventh day does appear in some of the catechisms, in some of them it's removed completely. And in order to retain the ten, they divide number ten, the tenth commandment, into two parts so that they can make up for getting rid of commandment number two. So the fact is that they have changed laws and times. And this is part of what the Antichrist does, according to Daniel. In the Catechism from 1994, let's read this. Sunday, fulfillment of the Sabbath. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath, which follows it chronologically every week. For Christians, its ceremonial observance replaces that of the Sabbath. It goes on to say, the Sabbath, which represented the completion of the first creation, has been replaced by Sunday, which recalls the new creation inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ. Funny how that's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. And the fact that the apostles are not keeping that Sunday Sabbath. But this is fascinating in the same catechism. In respecting religious liberty, and I just read this again last night in its full context. In res this is where it ends. In respecting religious liberty and the common good of all, Christians should seek recognition of Sundays and the church's holy days as legal holidays. Think about this. This is a contradiction in terms. This is an oxymoron. You can't have religious liberty and legislate Sunday keeping at the same time. In secular governments, that's what it's talking about here, as legal holidays, legal where? Legal in the countries where you live as a Christian. But that's what it's doing. So when the Pope today is talking about religious liberty, and he's talking about this a lot, Okay? The Catholic Church really has not changed. Its guise is religious liberty, but underneath its religious liberty is heading to one point and purpose, and that is world domination and power through the sacraments of the Church, which include the Eucharist on Sunday. We're going there next. Pope Francis, sorry, Pope Francis says in his latest encyclical, on Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist Notice, has special importance. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath. Oh my. Wait a minute. Good Adventists, where did Sunday come? Where did, where did the Sabbath come from? Creation. Creation. And long before there was any Ten Commandment given at Sinai, not long before, but before, you remember the story of the manna and the instructions given of the manna? That came before the Ten Commandments were given. Sabbath was already in place from creation before there were Jews. It is meant to be a holy day, a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Sunday is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the new creation, whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. 
the law, am I almost out of time? Three minutes? Okay. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day Sabbath so that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. This is a wonderful quote from Exodus. Wish the rest of it was quoted. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. Interesting. And so the day of rest, centered on the Eucharist, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and for the poor. This Pope is about the poor. And in this encyclical, this whole encyclical deals with uh, ecology and the saving of this planet. I'm not going to speak much about this. I'm just going to say this, that this encyclical was personally given by the Pope to our current president when he visited there just a few months ago in May. So again, the influence of the Catholic Church is, is being pushed. Now, what our president will decide to do with it is another matter, but that's interesting. Martin Luther, what did he say? He has deposed all of Scripture and set up his own laws. Now, Luther, of course, kept Sunday. But notice what he says. He has deposed all of Scripture and set up his own laws. And Giselle, in the next presentation, will talk about the comparison that Luther and the Reformers and the artists of the Reformation made between Christ and Antichrist. It's powerful to see the artwork because they compared an art Christ and what he did when he was on this earth to the Antichrist and the Pope and what he was doing on the earth. And through this dialectic between the art, it was an amazing, amazing thing to show the contrast between those. Now I want to end with the sacraments as salvation. Sacraments are important. There are seven of them. We'll talk about them in a moment. This is from Canon Law. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone. You see that? That's a, that's a, a response to the Reformation. The grace of justification through all the sacraments, though all the sacraments, I'm sorry, are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. This is a way of the church saying, let him be out. There are seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. Baptism, Eucharist. Eucharist is extremely important. By the way, what is the Eucharist? That's the Mass. That's when transubstantiation takes place and when, when the, the host, the wafer, the bread, literally in Catholic teaching becomes the body of Christ. And the reformers, most of them, even Luther towards the end of his, at first he had a hard time with this, but Calvin and Melanchthon and many of the others, they, 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 they did not see this as, as a reality. These are the things that you have to do to attain salvation. And I was just told, interestingly enough, by, I mentioned I have Catholic family, just a couple of days ago, we were talking about this, and they admitted that they were not practicing Catholics, but that in order to be a practicing Catholic, you have to take part in Mass at least twice a year on Christmas and Easter, okay? 
so twice a year. This is what Pope Francis says in his latest encyclical. It is in the Eucharist that all that has been created finds its greatest exaltation. Grace, which tends to manifest itself tangibly, found unsurpassable expression when God himself became man and gave himself as food for his creatures. Interesting. Well, Jesus did say, I'm the bread of life, but I don't think he meant that literally. In the Eucharist, fullness is already achieved. It is the living center of the universe. This sounds very interesting. I'll, I'll get to this in a moment. It is the center of the living universe, the overflowing core of love and of inexhaustible life, joined to the incarnate Son present in the Eucharist. The whole cosmos gives thanks to God. Indeed, the Eucharist is itself an act of cosmic love. Yes, cosmic in the bread of the Eucharist, creation is projected towards divination or divinize, divinization towards the holy wedding feast, towards unification with the creator himself. So when a Catholic does the maths, and this is done thousands of times every day around the world, because it doesn't just happen on Sundays, can happen at any time. They say they have the power, the priest has the power to make the host into the bread and the body, the literal flesh of Christ. Giselle will talk about that a little bit more in her presentations this afternoon, I believe. What did Martin Luther say? <clears throat> the papacy also negated Christ's sacrifice by proclaiming the mass to be a sacrifice for the living and the dead obtaining forgiveness of sins. It is as though Christ had not done this very thing on the cross, as though his sacrifice had no validity and were of no value. You see, Jesus did it once and for all. Why do we have to keep recreating it thousands of times every day through history? This puts great power in the church. What does the Bible say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We must believe in him. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, not according to his mercy, but according to his mercy he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Sola fide. By faith alone was one of the rallying cries of the Reformation. And in closing, it was these things that the men of the Reformation and the women of the Reformation, that they lived and died for. In closing, I just want to end with this picture and with a couple of slides here of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who at Oxford University in 1555 gave up their lives because, specifically, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, because they would not take part in the Eucharist, the Catholic Eucharist. Can you imagine being burnt at the stake because you would not take place in the Mass, which they saw as a complete substitution theology of what was biblical theology? My colleague, Norman Gully, who has written a magisterial four-volume systematic theology and just completed and published this last year his fourth volume on the church, 
goes through all of these fundamental differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. We could list many, many more. I invite you to read his 835-page book, by the way. If you, it's written very, very well and is not too complicated. And it is a majestic, majestic and, and very, very strong and powerful work, and it's very up-to-date. But he calls this replacement theology. What we just have gone through here is a complete replacement theology of what the Bible teaches. And it replaces a human system for a biblical system that the reformers lived and died for. Here at Oxford in one of the squares is a monument to Ridley and Latimer and Thomas Cranmer, who at that time was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Today, the Archbishop of Canterbury, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, whenever it was, on October 31, signed the Joint Declaration bringing Protestantism and Catholicism together. But in 1556, the Archbishop of Canterbury was burnt on the stake because he would not take part in the Eucharist. Where have we gone and where are we going today? This image, this, what do you call this, honey? A print, thank you. This print was printed in Fox's Book of Martyrs less than 10 years after the event occurred. Less than 10 years. And art historians would say, I'm taking away a little bit of her thunder, but she's not showing this piece, I think. Art historians say that this is a most likely very accurate depiction of the event. Here is Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, looking on from the tower, the jail tower, where he is still in prison because he will not be martyred for his faith until the following year in, in 1556. But here we find Ridley and Latimer tied together, and we find all around the witnesses to that event. And Hugh Latimer is quoted as saying, just before the flames would engulf them, play the man, Master Ridley, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And I want to ask you today as we close this session, as we break for lunch, are we willing to stand as the reformers stood for the truth of God's holy word? Are we willing not to take part in the Eucharist. A simple thing. I mean, they could have said, oh, it's just the Eucharist. I'll take this. I don't believe it's the body of Christ. I'll, I'll eat this little wafer of bread. It's, it's okay. But on principle, they refused. And the result was a, deput a disputation and a trial and an ongoing situation that led ultimately to their martyrdom. And it wasn't just these three men. It was men and women on through the ages. That is the legacy of the Protestant Reformation, men and women that would stand even to the end. That is the heritage that we have today. And let me tell you, we are living in a time when we need to know our Bibles as never before, when we need to study prophecy as never before to understand where we live in Earth's history. Because Jesus is coming soon. 
And if Luther were alive today, Luther was not perfect by any means. He had issues, he had problems. We all have issues and we all have problems. But by God's grace and through the righteousness that he works in us and for us, we have been called to that sanctifying truth of, of following Jesus wherever he leads, of having the patience of the saints. These are the saints, my friends, the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the legacy and the witness of men and women, thousands and millions of them that stood by the truth of your word and would not relinquish that truth for anything, who had their eyes set on a greater reality, the kingdom of God, an everlasting kingdom. We thank you for people like Master Ridley and Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, great theologians who, like their predecessor at Oxford University, John Wycliffe, preached the truth, proclaimed the truth, lived the truth, and in those three cases even died for the truth. Lord God, may we not sacrifice truth for unity, but may we proclaim truth for the sake of others, billions of people around the world who are languishing because of a lack of truth. We have so much to share. May we not hide it under a bushel. May we be your agents, your missionaries, your men and women to take this to the ends of the earth. Lord God, that is our prayer on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, Visit us online at www.gycweb.org.